The following lecture is from a course called Psychology 3717, uh, Memory. It's for the winter term of 2019. By the way, how the hell did it ever get to be 2019? Anyway, hope you like the class and uh, see you next time. Hey, everything works. This is bizarre. Um, except that there's no shades and it's very bright in here. But we have a nice bright white background, so we should be okay. Uh, so today, I introduce some stuff. I think I think this will probably bleed into next class. Um, also, if you've taken a look at the Tobin paper, I know it's pretty deep. Um, it's also kind of long, but I hope that today, when I talk about some of the issues about studying memory you get an idea of, I think it'll, having the, the, the background of my lecture and then also having taken a look at the Tolving paper, I think you'll get a notion of, like, I think they'll, they'll sort of inform each other. But if you have questions, of course, obviously, feel free to ask them. Um, so I think to begin with, we can say that memory is a part of cognitive psychology. So study of memory is done by cognitive psychologists. Anybody here taking cognition with Laurie Bloomfield? So a couple you have? OK, very good. Um, so cognition is about representation right, of the world. So if, if, let's define cognition. You can tell me, by the way, if this is different than what, what Laurie would say in that class. Um, this is from an old book that I used to teach a course. We used to have a course here called Memory and Cognition. We split them up because they were, there was too much for one course. Um, and in fact, this is the book I used in 1996 to uh, teach that class. And the it opened up by telling us that cognition or mental activity involves the acquisition, storage, retrieval, and use of knowledge. Okay. That's good. I like that. That's a nice definition of cognition. You can see the be memory parts in there. Gleitman, this is my intro psych textbook. See, you see how I prepared this lecture? I looked at books on my shelf. That's what I did. I just, oh, there's one. Gleitman's a great uh, intro psych book. Uh, it was wonderful. It was really expensive, too. It was $37. Um, in 1984, that's like $1,000 today. Not, there wasn't the inflation that's that bad. Books were cheaper. They actually were. Uh, Gleitman was actually a very famous uh, psychologist who studied with uh, Tolman. So that's kind of a cool thing. Um, like he said, it's what organisms know and how they know it. I like that. I like that. Know is kind of one of those words that it's kind of wishy-washy, but that's OK. I mean, it's. Representing stuff, I guess. Oh, then I went to the intro to the to the to the psych book that we used in my uh, human memory class when I took it in 1985. Again, I did this by just looking at my bookshelf. Oh, there's one. Pulling it down. It's Ellison Hunt. Cognitive psychology proceeds with the study of mental functioning through the scientific method. One hopes. It's, I mean, either that or just sitting around doing nothing. So. Sure, that's true. And I think Endel says it's best. He says one of the unmistakable characteristics of an immature science is its looseness of definitions. So I think there's some commonalities here, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. And like I said, probably a little bit on Monday. But there are some commonalities in all these definitions. So, no. Well, 
we also have to, as I say in the title of the slide here, we have to think about this. We're trying to put this into the study of memory, not just cognitive psychology, but as the whole overarching thing, but the, the sub-area, which is memory. There's commonalities, as I mentioned here. Um, I think one of them is pattern recognition. Because if we're going to encode something, if we're going to represent something, we have to figure out patterns and re recognize patterns. Yeah? Because think about it. If everything was thought of as a unique thing, represented uniquely, it would be, first of all, exceedingly inefficient. Right? It'd be pretty inefficient. But it would also be difficult to do. So you think about words, okay? So that's pattern recognition when we read. If I change the font, you still recognize it as a word. So if I change this from whatever the hell that is uh, to, I don't know, Comic Sans, what happens? But if I did, you'd recognize it. You'd think I'd gone a little nuts, but you'd recognize it as, and you'd see it as the same word. There wouldn't be any extra processing needed. You can represent it. You can remember it. So if I presented you a list of words, and which is a very common technique we use in, in, in the study of memory, which is to give you a list of words you recall. So if I gave you a list of words in one font and had you try to remember them uh, in a different font, would there be a small effect? Yeah, there is a small effect, but it's so small as to be meaningless if it's what's called explicit memory. If it's, tell me what the words were. Circle the ones you saw. Okay. So pattern recognition, I think, is one of them. And we recognize, oh, that's a person. That's a tree. That's a cat. That's a car. I think attention's important because... All of these things talk about encoding things pretty much, and they talk about representing things and knowing things. And if you're going to do that, that requires some action on your part. It requires that you are an active part of your learning. Yeah? Make sense? So you're actually part of it. You are putting effort into it. You are way to word this, sort of assigning resources, processing resources to a stimulus. Attention. And as you, I'm sure, know, the more, the, the less distraction you have, the more attention you focus on one thing, the better you remember it. Right? People who tell you they study better with the radio on, or with music on, or with the TV on, or whatever, are lying to you. They think they do, but they actually don't. It may feel that way, but it's not true. Because if that were the case, that means that your brain works differently than everyone else who's ever lived. <laughs> Aren't you magically special? No, it doesn't work that way, okay? You better you focus, right? Because attention, the amount of processing resources you have is, is a finite thing. There's knowledge about the world, pre-existing knowledge, right? So to, to, to recognize a pattern, we have to know stuff already. We have to know stuff already. And again, reading is a nice example here because we use a lot of words, uh, lists of words. 
presented uh, very often on a computer screen or on a piece of paper or whatever. So you think about reading. Think about, and that's knowledge about the world. That's how the world works. And in fact, it is, for the most part, completely inaccessible to consciousness, right? You're not aware of how you read. You haven't been aware of how you read since you were a small child. When was the last time you sounded out a word? Right? You don't do that anymore. Example. Oh, example, right? Remember you did that when you were like six? You'd sound out words. You don't do that anymore. You might look at a word and go, I, I can pronounce that. I don't know what it means, but I can pronounce it. Right? So that's knowledge about the world. And that knowledge allows us to put attention to something and recognize things and then the story. On the other hand, think about if you, ever, if, if you don't know how to read another alphabet. So if you don't know how to read uh, the Cyrillic alphabet, so you don't know how to, how to read Russian, it just looks crazy. There's a backwards three uh, with a line through it, backwards R, something that looks like an E, but it's not an E, There's things that look like Greek letters. What does that even mean, right? And no matter how hard you try, if you have no knowledge of how that alphabet works, you can't do it. Or if you read a, 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 a language that has like pictograms, right? Characters. You can't read that. You just look at it and go, that's cool. Which leads to people getting stupid tattoos of Chinese characters that say, I'm a loser, or things like that on them, which I think is the greatest thing in the world. I think that's better than world peace. I, I <laughs> screw world peace. If we can embarrass people, isn't this cool? Yeah, that's great. There's a lot, there's a lot of biographical part of this, too. When we think about memory, and we think about these different kinds of definitions, part of this is very personal. So knowledge about the world, we all agree with that that word says attention, right? We may not all be native English speakers in the room, but we all can speak English and read English, and we can say that word says attention. That's easy. Right? It's actually a bad example because that's also how you spell it in French. Yeah. So it's example there. That's a good one. Let's go with that. So that's English. And we can all agree that's English, right? And it goes, it says there. And no one's going to disagree on the pronunciation. You may not be able to make the TH phoneme, perhaps, if you're my mother in law. And then you make it with everything that has a T in it. She's Francophone. There's no. Th so then, when they learn, th they put it in everything with a T. Yeah. I'm not making fun of her. I'm making fun of all Francophones. Um, it's a joke. I'm married to a woman who speaks French. I speak French. It'll do. Anyway, however, there's not going to be any argument how you pronounce this word. Even if you don't know how to do the, th you know that that's supposed to be there. That's fine. On the other hand, um, and we all know what breakfast is. On the other hand, when I, if I say to you, what did you have for breakfast? You would say, I had this. I, I, had, a, I had a cinnamon bun. Just like, I had a, cough, a cup of coffee. One of those Pillsbury ones. You know, like you feel like you, you baked something in the morning. Mm -hmm. you, know, you did is open a thing up at 350, put it in the oven. <laughs> My God, I'm a chef. 
That's what happened to me at breakfast. What you had at breakfast is entirely different. Maybe some of you had the cinnamon buns. They weren't on sale at Rome. The Pillsbury. I can actually make cinnamon buns. I don't know why I buy this crap. Um, so there's part of this that's completely personal. Right? So we agree on patterns of things like words, but we can't, we, we all know a fact about the world that breakfast is a meal you have in the morning, but what we all have for breakfast are different things. There's a really personal part of this, an autobiographical part of it. And there's also sort of imagery in here. Now, one wonders how important it is, but it's there. Like, I can imagine what the cinnamon bun looked like when I got it. Right? I know what the coffee looked like when it was in my cup. When I was sorting laundry to bring upstairs to put away before getting ready for everything, because yesterday's laundry. I know exactly what it was like looking at the pile for my son going, how do you wear that many clothes in one day? How's that a thing? How's it? It's this high. It's like four hoodies, three pairs of pants. It's like, what did you do yesterday? I don't know. But I can imagine that. If I say to you, if I give you a list of words, and some of them are kind of concrete things, like table, chair, uh, screen, phone. You all may have had somewhat different versions of those things in your head, but you all imagine tables and chairs and screens. If I say justice, freedom, equality, and dignity, I don't know that you can even imagine what those look like. What does justice look like? Justice looks like Shane Weber carrying the Stanley Cup down St. Catherine Street in Montreal. Um, you can't imagine justice. You can't imagine freedom. And the weird thing is, if we can take words, and one of the things you can do is you can take a list of words that are both, this is common in English. Um, so you take these concrete words and the abstract words, and I give you the concrete words and the abstract, and you study them, and then I have you, have you remember them. You remember the concrete ones better. And then the implication is because you can imagine what they look like. I'm not entirely sure I buy that, but it's a pretty good explanation. Because dignity, freedom, justice, equality, liberté, fraternité, égalité are hard things to imagine. But chair, table, cup are easy. Right? So imagery seems to play a role of some sort. It seems to play a role of some sort. I think we use these things to solve problems. Right? So think about the, going from memory up to cognitive psychology. And the problems, I don't mean necessarily formal problems. I don't necessarily mean, you know, uh, a train leaves uh, Sault Ste. Marie. Wait a second, we don't have trains. Um, perhaps a freight train. The leaf color changing train. Wow, that sounds like fun. <laughs> okay. Look, if you're into that scene, man. I guess when you just live here, you go, yeah, look, leaves are changing. Great. Mm -hmm. 
people go, I'll pay for that. Really? Come sit in my backyard. It's, you can watch it. It's great. Watch the leaves change. It's really fun. Past the time, there's liquor. Um, so I'm talking about there's a problem like, you know, there's fuzzy problems like, what do I have for breakfast this morning? Right? I know there's formal problems like actually, you know, the train leaves here, leaves here, or whatever. Um, Creativity is weird, and we probably hardly ever talk about it. It's probably the only time we ever talk about it, but it does come up. I get. I guess the question I can ask is, what is creativity? And if I can't, and I can't measure creativity, because I can't, I can't define it with something I can measure. It's kind of like what's consciousness, right? Like I don't know. Like I don't know what creativity is. But there are creative solutions to problems, and creative people. Tend to, I mean, you're using memory, using representation all of the time, right? There's that great moment in the movie um, Apollo 13. You seen Apollo 13? I say the movie because most of yeah, you guys were alive when this happened. There's also this great moment, actually, in history, um, when these three guys are orbiting the Earth and their their spaceship's screwed and they're all going to die, and they have an air scrubber, right? And like a filter that filters at CO2, but they got the wrong adapter because everything's going wrong. And the engineers on the ground figure out how to make something out of like duct tape and the cover of a binder that they have on the, on the, on the spacecraft. And it's a plastic bag. Because it's like, here's all the stuff they have. That's pretty creative. That actually happened. So that's, I guess that is creative, but I don't know what creativity is, so I will skip that. Uh, now, you need to use memory to acquire store retrieve information in order to do all of these things we're talking about. None of these things are done without memory. So it's a very fundamental process. It's a fundamental process in human cognition, and that goes from the simplest things to something complicated like, you know, see some sort of social phenomenon or something. Make sense so far? Yeah, you could. It's memory is the, I, the way to look at it, and I talked about this I think the other day, is that what memory is, is it's the persistence of learning. And where learning ends and memory begins, I don't know. And really, it's not a big question. People worry too much about it. It's like, when, where does sensation end and where does perception begin? I'm not sure I know the answer to that either. And I don't think it's an important question. Um, they're both things, and we give them names for them. So where does learning end and where does memory begin? I don't know. But when we see that learning's happened and then it persists, we call that memory. So that does include, by the way, that means that habituation continuing on, you know, but habituation, that's memory. We know that, so that this is also saying that uh, a CSUS pair, right, condition, unconditioned stimulus, and then the next day when you give the condition stimulus, you still get a condition response, that's memory. It doesn't, so memory doesn't have to be this, act, this thing where you, quote, consciously Make efforts to recall something. It can be, but it needn't be. In fact, probably most of what we remember, we're not 
really aware of. It just happens. Which I know is kind of an odd thing to think of. In some respects, it's like, that doesn't seem like memory. Because in, in, in the popular parlance, we tend to think of memory as something that is something where we have to put effort in. When people say, I don't have a good memory, they don't mean that uh, classical conditioning doesn't work on me. <laughs> That's not what they're saying, right? They're saying, uh, they usually are talking about things like facts about the world or autobiographical ones. They're not talking about, sometimes I forget how to walk. It's not a thing, right? But the ability to, to, to know how to walk still, that is memory. So everything we do that isn't, you know, keeping our heart beating and stuff like that. Anything we do psychologically, anything that is behavior, cognition, that we do needs memory of some sort. There are many different kinds. The Tumbling article I assigned to you talks about episodic versus semantic memory, which is something we'll talk about. There's a lot of other potential distinctions you can make. So other cognitive things couldn't happen without memory. So these higher order cognitive things like problem solving, right? We couldn't do those without actually having a memory. And I keep talking a memory like it's a unitary thing, and it really probably isn't, almost certainly isn't. So memory is the core of cognition, it seems to me. And I know that, for example, in Laurie's cognition class, memory comes up. It's not like she just ignores it. You couldn't ignore it. How could you talk about manipulating things that are in your mind without talking about memory? Okay. Questions? You still good? No questions so far? I mean, I guess what I'm saying so far is all pretty much obvious. Okay, here's some questions. Uh, first, first point is that all science begins with the statement, I don't know. That's actually a quote from Mr. Data. Star Trek. What episode? Forget the name of it. I know the episode. It's with Megillum, the big face that's in, in space talking. Anyway, kids today, I watch Star Trek. Don't watch a show that's been off the air for 30 years. So, not 30, 20. TNG went off the air in what? Yeah, 20 years ago. Five years ago. Something in London. Yeah. But it's true. You don't, if you don't know something, that's an ego. Well, how I figured out, well, you some science. So here's some questions that people have been asking probably since I've been thinking about thinking. So this is pre, even pre-experimental psychology. So pre-Vunt, you know, going back to probably ever since people sat around a fire when they had time to just have leisure time and they figured out they, they could grunt to each other and it made sense. Are your memories permanent? I get asked this whenever I teach teaching for a site when I talk about the memory part because people ask, this is a question that just comes to people's minds. Are your memories permanent? But it's a cool question, right? Is it the case, for example, like how many people here remember their fifth birthday party? 
That's usually a good one that nobody remembers. Good. But do you think it might be in there somewhere? Because like it happened to you, unless you didn't have a fifth birthday party, and I feel sad for you. <laughs> but you probably all had a birthday party, but you're fine. But you don't remember it, but it happened. In fact, there's maybe even photos of it somewhere. Call your mom and your mom has, your mom has all those pictures. Believe me, as a parent, you keep that crap. About every couple of years, you look at this box of pictures, or even space on a hard drive nowadays, and go, should I get rid of that? Probably not. But it goes through your mind. It's been recorded. It happened. So is it in there? I don't know. And my feeling on this changes probably every couple of days. So today I'm going to say, yes, it's permanent. And in about 10 minutes, I might say, nah, probably not. It's probably gone. Right? I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting question, right? Because if you don't remember it, and then you see the picture of your fifth birthday party, suddenly, sometimes memories flood back to you, don't they? Right? You look and you go, oh my god, that kid, what was his name? He was an asshole. Why was he at my party? <laughs> well, he was the neighbor kid, and I couldn't. I, we were friends with his parents. But yeah, he was a rotten kid. I totally forgot about him. He made me drink vinegar once. I'm just picking something. I don't know what that, that's a weird thing, and how a five-year-old could another five-year-old drink vinegar. One thing to say. You have a glass of vinegar. It's good for you. Saw face. Where are memories stored? Okay, in the brain. Now let's get a little more specific. I don't know. There's a lot of... We're getting there. We're getting there. Um, <coughs> we know a couple of things. We know there isn't a memory center. Memory is stored right here. We know that's not true. In fact, it's probably the case that when you remember something, the same pattern of activation happens in your brain as happened when you learned it. It's probably something like that. Some of the processes we know for storage. Right? So we know some of the processes for storage. We know the some of the brain regions that are necessary for storage of certain types of memory. Okay? But sort of localized, nobody's really sure about that. And in fact, it may be kind of a silly question because it may just be a, an overall pattern of activation uh, depending on the memory. So this, in fact, may be kind of a silly question. Can I improve my memory? This is a question people ask. This is another one of those questions I get asked a lot when I teach intro or when I do like talks for, sometimes I've done um, incoming students, like trying to recruit students. And I scare about a third of them, and I excite about a third of them, and a third of them go, oh, is that gone? Last time I did one, I did, it, I did one on study techniques because it's a useful thing, and it's sort of like, we'll be talking about this in psychology. Uh, this was about four or five years ago? Four years ago, probably. And my daughter said she was going to school here then, uh, and she said uh, she heard someone talking on her phone saying, we just had this talk from this prof, and he was kind of excited and really weird. Uh, hey, it's just Maddie's, said she walked, thought to herself, yeah, dad must have talked. <laughs> So this is an interesting question. So can you do it with pills and all this? I don't know. Uh, can you do it with techniques? Sure. 
right? Learning how to encode things properly. Uh, those kind of things are, that you can do. But people are try, constantly trying to sell you stuff, right? People are trying to sell you things, trying to sell you supplements to help your memory. That's mostly bullshit. When I say mostly, I mean completely. Um, on the other hand, teaching you how to encode things better, good study habits, that's a real thing. And those are real questions. That's a, that's a proper question that you actually can't answer with a yes, but not the way that people think. Right? Anytime you read on the side of a bottle of some bullshit item you buy at a drugstore that says, improves memory. Well, it probably does in some rats for one extra arm of a maze once. That's enough that they can go, yeah, I'll put that on the label. It doesn't, there's no steroids for brain memory things. Brain memory things. Also, apparently, no steroids for the ability to speak English. Where are they stored? How are they stored? We're starting to get an idea of how. Like I said, pattern of activation. Is it new synapses? Is it new what, what have called cell assemblies, right? So that's patterns of activation. Is it actually not so much at the synaptic level, is it at the neuronal level? Individual neurons, and yes, it can be depending on the kind of task and the kind of something very simple. Oftentimes, it is actually literally just a simple uh, change in a neuron or or some neurons, and we can measure stuff like that. Now. You can measure early gene expression; it's really cool. This is the other thing, though. If, when you do forget things, is it actually just gone, or is it just you could? Can you get it back? These are all kind of related, right? So, okay. What's, what's, what's one that you would have learned that maybe you've forgotten? When the last episode of Star Trek aired? Yeah, there's a good one. Mm -hmm. But I can look that up. Uh, I, I, actually, I, I can work that out. That's the thing. Like, I can figure, because I, I know when it was in my life. And I remember watching the final episode, and I know where I was living. So I can sit there and go, that must have been 1993. It probably was. It might have been 94. But it had to be between 1993 and 1996. On the other hand, you learned capitals of countries in school, right? Sure. Um, what's one you would have learned that's gone? Okay, what's the capital of Iran? You know, don't say it out loud. But if you know it. Okay. But if I ask you, if I give you a list of, say, four cities. Could you tell me which one was Iran? What was the capital of Iran? You think you could? Who, who thinks they could do that? So Canadian cities. No, we're going to do Iran. <laughs> yeah. Is it Fredericton? Um, that's not Iran. So probably could do it, right? So if I said Kabul, Islamabad, Tehran, and Baghdad, which one is it? Which one? Tehran. It's Tehran. So you forgot it, but it's actually probably there. Because when I give you a multiple choice question, this is, in fact, what I just did there, that technique is called, uh, it, it's, it's to test a thing called feeling of knowing, which is the tip, like the tip of the tongue phenomenon. It's a really hard thing to do, and it works best with geographical knowledge. Because we learn these facts about the world that are mostly mundane, and most of us aren't freaks like I am and are interested in things like that. So 
what we do with these, because most of us don't sit around thinking about cities of the world, past grade seven geography, because you have to know that anymore. Right? So you know you learned it. And then we ask you how confident you would be. And the cool thing is, every so often, someone goes, oh, I know, I know that one. It's like, you know when you're playing Trivial Pursuit, and someone, and they read the card, and you go, oh, God, I know it, I know it, I know it. But you know, you know it's there, but it's not, you can't, it's not accessible. You have forgotten it, but it's still there. This is an interesting question. Because the idea with, oh, it's, it's Tehran, and you get reminded because you hear the, the actual stimulus, you hear the item. Um, it obviously wasn't gone, because you're right. People tend to be right on these things more than they're wrong. But some things that are forgotten must be gone. Wait, that means not everything's permanent. Dude. So it gets, things are all intertwined, right? This is a question I'm interested in. Is our memory similar to memory in other species? And frankly, what are the similarities and differences between species in memory? This would be what I call my job. That's what I do. And the cool thing is here, every other species doesn't have a language. So they're representing the world without language. It's hard for us to imagine representing the world without language, isn't it? Uh -huh. It's almost impossible, right? But we know that there are nonverbal humans who have memory. They're called babies. Then there are adults who are nonverbal. You can think of there are people who have things like someone with autism, things like that, who don't speak. Yet they can remember things. Right? And it's clear they remember things. Because they show, you just use a, there are techniques that you use, so if you don't use a list of words, you use something else. And you just, you can see how people recognize an object as easy. And oftentimes the, the data are very similar. Like the characteristics are similar. So, you know, then again, there's memory in bees, for example. Bees remember things. And it's kind of complicated how they do, the things they do. We'll do a couple classes on animal memory because I think it's interesting. Um, and the neat thing is, um, they clearly have a map-like representation of their environment. Yet, and we probably do too, but they're doing this with a whole lot fewer neurons than we have. <laughs> So that's a kind of a, that's kind of a cool thing, and that's something that's not even a vertebrate, you know. I mean, I'm quite sure that even chips, our closest relatives, don't sit around thinking about what being a chimp is. And they, I, I you know, it's, it's not like that. But they have memory that's pretty similar to ours in a lot of respects. So it's kind of those are cool questions. All right, there's a catch in all this. We want to study this scientifically. We can't just sit around and go, yeah, I think. And until 1879, as you know, that's what people did. It was philosophers sitting around in, I like to think, leather chairs. Um, I don't know, probably not, but let's imagine. That's philosophers that just sit around saying things without needing any proof. And that's really what philosophy is, isn't it? Just saying stuff and arguing, which is fine. Science comes along and then 
whatever. But science is about measurement control prediction. That's what we do. We want to know how the world works, and we want to be able to reliably replicate the results we get. It's not about argument. It's about, I can show you this again and again and again, under many different conditions, that this is how something works. So in science, it's about experimentation. And you all know what experiments are, so I'm not going to go into what experiments are. And it's about cause-effect relationships that we can reliably talk about and, as I said, replicate. Right? It's not just that I can say I found this once. It's that I found it once, and you found it once, and you found it once, and you found it four times, and then your lab did it, and your lab did it, etc. Right? Science is a very social activity. People don't have to think of it that way, but it really is because you have to replicate stuff. And to replicate stuff, you have to think about other people and what they've done. But the, 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 the sort of the strange thing is here, how do we measure something and control something that we can't kick, we can't touch? My friend Rob, uh, Rob Hampton, who's a psych professor at Emory University in Atlanta, Rob has a, uh, an expression, if you, if you can't kick it, it ain't real, which I quite like, which makes Rob sound like he comes from somewhere sitting on a porch with a twig in his mouth. Can't kick it right real. That's so not who he is. But I like the expression, you can't kick it, because it's, it, it's reminding you it's something you can't touch. Right? Unlike, and in fact, a lot of psychologists like this. It's stuff we can't touch. Isn't it? It's phenomena that we can reliably do something with. Memory itself How do you touch memory? That's, that's, that sounds like something you say after you've got, had some halfway decent weed. Mm -hmm. So nice being able to just say those things now, and if it shocks you, I don't care. It's completely legal. <laughs> like, I can't get in trouble for that anymore. No one's going to say, so I'm going to change it now and talk about it. So when you're taking heroin, <laughs> no, I'm not, because I've never done that. I never would. Things scare the hell out of me, and that's on the list. But yeah, like, we can't touch memory. So we have to operationalize, right? So we'll measure variable A, which we believe correlates with memory, or is the result of memory. So one of the nice things about something like memory is we can almost always agree that X is the result of memory. So if I give you a list of words and you recall some of those words, we call that memory, and we would all agree on that. It's the product of memory, but we'd all agree it's memory. So I think it's a little, now I may be wrong here, so correct me if I am, but I think in things that have a lot more inputs, and things are a lot more fuzzy, things like social psychology, personality psychology, there's a lot more argument there. Is that from that trait? Is that from that situation? Whatever. Whereas with something like memory, no one's going to disagree that that's memory. So the percentage of words recalled, which is a very common uh, dependent variable, or word fragments completed. So percentage of words is one thing. I give you a list of words, and you recall. I could have you, I could give you a, a, a list, 
right? And uh, say, study these words, and I, I, I can either give them all at once, or I give them to you one at a time for five seconds each, or whatever. And then I'll give you some kind of, perhaps some kind of distractor task. A very typical approach here is to get people, again, back to geography, is to get people to fill in a map. Because people take it exceedingly seriously. Because they think you're testing their intelligence. It's one of the great things about psychology is people have all these preconceived notions and we don't, they, they're all wrong. But the beautiful thing about that is we can take advantage of it to distract people. So we say, we're interested in your geographic knowledge. Can you fill in this map, please? Five minutes. And people get all competitive. And they're so wrong. It's great. Or another good distractor task is uh, one that I've used a lot, which is can you count backwards out loud from 10,000 by 17s, please? Keep going until I tell you to stop. You go 10,000, 9,983, 9,960. You're screwed. Like All the words are gone. They're in there, but they're all unworking. So then what I do, after I've distracted you a little bit, is I give you, I say, can you recall the words that were on the list? Write them down. Or I can give you a list of words, and half of them are words you saw, and half of them are words you didn't see, and I say, circle the ones you remember. Okay? Good. So that's pretty obvious. On the other hand, word fragment completion is a different kind of task, where if I, I give you a list of words, and one of the words on the list, let's say, was coffee. Okay? Um, this moves like one surface press. So then I give you a list of word fragments. That, and we'll give you another one. <coughs> okay. One of those words, cocoa. I think that's C O C O A, right? That's yep. cocoa. Um, was not on the list. Coffee was on the list. You are more likely to fill out the word coffee correctly than you are to fill out the word cocoa. I like using cocoa as an example because it is also a warm brown drink. But it doesn't really matter. But If you saw the word coffee before. If anything is um, this kind of It's a different kind of memory than recalling or recognizing. This kind of memory, in fact, your likelihood of filling in coffee correctly has no correlation with you remembering the word coffee explicitly. In other words, saying that coffee was on the list. None. Yet you're more likely to fill in coffee correctly if you saw coffee as well. That's called priming. And it's implicit memory. It's memory you don't know you have. Almost all our memory is implicit. Most of our memory is completely unavailable to, to consciousness. No? How do you read? I don't know. It just happens. And there's even things like, how do you ride a bike? And that's a classic example because people don't know. You can't describe how to ride a bicycle. which is why we do a poor job training our kids to ride bicycles. Because you think, I'm an adult, I know how to ride a bike, I know, I'll just tell you what I do. And you don't really know what you do. 
like get on pedal and they'll turn the handlebars. And the first thing when you tell a kid to turn the handlebars to turn, they fall off because that's not how you turn. You, you lean and turn the opposite way and then turn. And you're thinking, no, I don't. Yes, you do. It's implicit. You don't even know you do that. You can teach somebody to ride a bike in about 10 minutes. All you have to do is watch a YouTube video of how to teach someone to ride a bike. Because it's all implicit. And everything they're telling you on the video is all, oh, this is how you do it. You look and go, what? I was teaching, two years ago, I was teaching my son. And my son's not a small person. Right? He's 17 now. He was 15 then. He's got autism. Um, pretty high functioning now. But he's like 5'10", 230. Like, he's a big guy. And I'm trying to teach him to ride a bike. And I'm doing the, the classic dad things, right? I'm holding the back of it, except holding, trying to keep him balanced. was not easy. <laughs> and he'd fall. And I mean, when you fall when you're that big, it hurts, right? When you fall when you're four, you go, oh, and you get back on the bike. Because it doesn't hurt, because you fell from this far off the ground. And I went and looked, and I watched this video. It's like, really? That's how you ride a bike? Oh. And I went outside with him again. He goes, no, I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall. Here. Next thing you know, we're going around the block. No problem, right? Because it's completely inaccessible to consciousness how you write a bike. Same thing with this. You wouldn't think that if you remember that you filled this out, if you think to yourself, oh, if I filled that out, I'm going to also coffee. I'm also going to remember the word coffee explicitly, recognize it, recall it. Nope. No relationship. So it's a different kind of memory. Types of errors that are made. So what if, in fact, you were more likely to fill out Cocos, it would call that an error. Even though you know, it's possible to do this without having seen the word coffee or cocoa, right? Let's call that an error. Versus, I don't know. That's for tree. Then we'd say, oh, they're probably remembering something about the meaning of the word. That they're more likely to fill out cocoa than they are to fill out tree. Because cocoa and coffee are the both tricks. Okay. Make sense? So we can look at the kind of errors people make. So if people were remembering, oh, here, this is somebody's honors thesis years ago. They did it with me. Um, we had people doing. Dichotic listening, so they listen to two different two different uh, stories, one in one ear, one in the other, and they're shadowing the left ear. So they're just repeating what's in the left ear, and that's actually at first very hard, but after a short period of time, you're decent at it. And you, you, you basically ignore what's in your right ear, going along. And they were also told that every so often, this was 15 minutes long, um, during the experiment, the screen would flash. And as soon as the screen flashed, they were to push the space bar. And in one group, that was random. And in the other group, the 35 times that happened, um, it was right after the word president was said. But it was in the unattended area. And it turned out, in fact, that the group that had it paired with the word president did better than the group that had it not paired, had it random. So in other words, you had learned that the screen flash was paired with president, but you weren't aware of it. And we actually asked people, can you tell us anything about the story in your right ear? 
the only thing they knew was, that was Dave Broadback, right? They get the, 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 the tone of voice, they didn't know the story was Now, years later, one of the things that one of my students did was, another group, there were two, other, two extra groups that were in this experiment. One group had, partway through, it changed to words that rhymed with president. Resident, hesitant, things like that. And in, in another group, it was words like king, leader, boss, prime minister. Now when we see, so this is like the kind of errors people make, like the pattern of the data. It turns out that it was just the sound, president, resident, hesitant. That was what mattered. It was not the meaning at all. So you can see the kinds of errors you make tell you how you're remembering something. And you even notice this when you're doing, when you're trying to recall something, actively trying to recall something. And sometimes you think of a meaning of something and sometimes just how it sounds. Okay, some analogies about how memory supposedly works. And they're, they're, they're some, they can be more or less useful. The one you hear a lot of is the old wax tablet, the idea of the tabula rasa. So you've got a, uh, a stylus that writes on a wax tablet. Right? A long time ago, this is how students used to take notes. Pieces of wax, and they scratch it with a, with a stylus. This is, you know, when I say a long time ago, this is thousands of years ago. Maybe it's like a sieve, you know, a sieve, you know, like when you, you get like a, you're panning for gold, because I know we've all done that. One way might use that example. You know, like sifting flour or something like that. Some stuff stays in the sieve and some stuff fits through the holes. So maybe your memory is like that, because you don't remember everything that happened to you, do you? I cut now, now, so that's, eh. Library's a little better because it's like a, it's a storage system, right? So there's a card catalog, or not really a card catalog now. They probably still call it that. But it's the catalog, so it's on in, the, in the computer system. Um, there are ways to search it, right? You search databases, and stuff is on a shelf, and you go and get it. Or stuff is available from a certain website, and it's served to you, or whatever. Right? That's a little better. And somewhat useful, I think. The idea of a workbench. So this is how long-term, we want to call this long-term memory. The library's like long-term memory. Because it's like, if you're sitting there and I, I say to you, well, can you remember who your teacher was in grade eight? You might have to sit there and think about it, think about grade eight a little bit, and think about that. Oh, okay, now I know who it is. So you're going through almost like a search system. Whereas, when I'm asking you to solve a problem of some sort, well, think about writing a test. Right? Once you've recalled everything, and tests aren't really about recall. I mean, I'm not just sitting there throwing facts at you. See if you know, know facts, so some of that. Mostly it's like, can you apply stuff? So it's like a workbench. It's like you're, or like a desktop of a computer. You've got all the stuff there, and some stuff's cluttered and not necessary. You know, you got some memes and some GIFs that you need available, and they're not GIFs. Don't call them GIFs, they're GIFs. I hate when people say GIF. I don't care. I'm right, you're wrong. 
There's all kinds of crap on your desktop, but there's also useful things, right? There's PDFs of articles you've got and things like that. You're using those to maybe write a paper. So that's sort of like a workbench as well. So there's different parts of memory, different kinds, and they make different analogies for each of them. Each of them. A network. So libraries kind of like a network. We can think of the internet like that, I guess, because when I ask for something, it shows up on my computer, but it didn't come from my computer. Right? So when I ask for a copy of an article, and I click somewhere, it takes me there. In the morning, when I read, um, what do I read when I get up in the morning? It's the first thing I read. Read the news. I don't really read the news. I listen to the news. I read The Athletic, which is a sports website. The pictures are one place. The story is another place. The series of comments at the bottom. Of the, and it's all served together into a page, right? So it's kind of like that. It's like a network. Certain resources are in some places, other resources are in other places. Filing cabinets, not bad, but most of us don't use filing cabinets anymore. Right? So it's not a great, just like the wax tablet, is not a great analogy anymore because no one uses a wax tablet. You can think of that as a piece of paper. I like to say wax tablet because that's the, the original idea when they talked about that is how memory works. That was, that's how long ago that is. The filing cabinet's not bad, but most of us just don't use filing cabinets anymore. We have things stored in our computers. And we have them stored in folders. Though less and less, because they can tag things, so it's not nearly as necessary. The idea of the computer in general isn't bad. And there's actually something in a computer called memory. Right? So that's kind of useful, because think about it. Stuff is stored in, uh, on a hard drive, or in the cloud, or whatever. It's away. It's not used right Right? So if you've got, I don't know, let's say you're using uh, Microsoft Word to, to write a paper. You open Word, and it loads. And it loads from some faraway place. It's not really far away, but, you know, it's in your computer. But, and it loads into the RAM, right? Like, it's actually now it's running. It's kind of like now we've taken a program, and you're running it in short-term memory or working memory. And then you store stuff. Okay. Not bad. These analogies, none of them are perfect. They're all somewhat useful. I guess the question you can ask is what's common about these? Memory is seen with all these analogies as an actual thing, even though, as I said, you can't kick it. It's seen as a physical thing. We wouldn't need analogies if we knew what it was. But we do see it then as a physical thing. It's kind of like a space that gets filled up with things, with stuff. Isn't it? Yeah, I think so. So it's like a space that gets filled up with stuff. And it has encoding, in other words, the writing of something, the writing of a memory. Um, it has storage. It's put away until it's needed. And it has retrieval. When we need it, we can grab it. So at some point in my life, and I don't know when this was, I could probably guess, it was probably in the early 1970s, I learned what the capital of Vietnam was, or when I was a kid, North Vietnam. 
It's Hanoi. I learned that because the Vietnam War was always on TV, and I was always reading the news in the newspaper because I was an odd little boy. My mother describes me reading the letters to the editor of the Globe and Mail and yelling at people. And I was like six. Look at this idiot. We have a strange son. Sure, that's mom and dad would saying that a lot, I imagine. And I got really interested in the world, so I asked for an atlas. My mom couldn't answer where all the countries were all the time, which I proceeded to destroy after six, six months of just looking through it constantly. My son comes by the autism exceedingly honestly. <laughs> Somehow it's got stored. I don't know how. I don't know when. It's probably skipped sometime in the early 1970s. Well, I can retrieve it anytime I want. The capital of Vietnam is Hanoi. Right? That's something I can do. That's a fact about the world. That's what's called sem that's semantic memory. On the other hand, I remember something autobiographical. I remember in 1972, in late September, when Canada was playing Russia in, a, in an important uh, hockey tournament, just Canada versus Russia, 1972, uh, the eighth game, and it was the series was tied three games apiece, and there was one tie. So it was 3-3-1, three, three, and, and the game was in Moscow. And at, uh, so 1 o'clock our time, so like 8 o'clock in, in, in the Soviet Union, we all got to go down to the gym and watch the game. I was in grade 2. Everybody got to go. The teachers, students, the country literally stopped. And you can probably ask your folks about this. You can ask them where they were when Paul Henderson scored the goal. And if they're my age or older, they know that. If they're in their early 50s or beyond that, they know where they were when the goal was scored, if they're Canadian. They're not Canadian. They're like, what? They moved here later. And that was, you know, I encoded that on September 28th, 1972. I know that. Stored, I don't know, I can retrieve it completely and beautifully and so accurately. And I looked at when, when, they, when they scored, when, when Phil Esposito and Paul Henderson and Ivan Cornway, that's who was on the ice, and it was Henderson from Cornway and Esposito. And when he scored, I looked at the little girl beside me, and I was great coops. I was seven, and I hugged her. And little boys don't hug little girls in great two because that's how you get cooties, I think, as you all know, because you're afraid of girls. And it's so vivid, except I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong because the little girl I hugged, I didn't meet until 1974. And it was in Toronto. At Crest Haven Public School in Toronto. I know that much because that's where I went to school in grade two. I didn't meet the little girl in my memory until I was in grade three or four when we moved to Sudbury. She was lived across the street from me. I remember her name, Maria. So she's now somehow in a memory. I'm retrieving what I think is a memory, except it's wrong. I know it's wrong. It has to be wrong. So the neatest thing about this actually is that even better, years later, we moved away from Sudbury to London in 1977. And I started undergrad in 1984. And in 1985, I was walking around campus at Western, and I ran into Maria. Because she'd come to Western. And we were talking, it was great. And she said, oh, some friends of mine are having a party. We should all get together. We should get together anyway. Come tonight. Here's the address. I said, totally, that'd be awesome. And we haven't talked, literally, we hadn't seen each other in, geez, seven, eight years. We were little kids then. It was really nice. So. Now in the memory, it, she's a little girl. She's in grade two, but she's wearing 80s clothes. Didn't happen, man. There's no way that's true. 
Now that is a an episodic memory, not an autobiographical memory. It's also there's all kinds of shit in it that's wrong. Like it's wrong, and I know it must be. I don't know who the little girl was beside me that I hugged. I'm sure I hugged a little girl. But the first friend who I had who I remember who was a girl was Maria Kostakos, who lived across the street from me in Sudbury. Wild, right? I mean, I didn't move to Sudbury until two years after that hockey game. Memory is not as accurate as you think it is, especially when it feels really accurate. That's often when it's really wrong. <laughs> Some of these analogies have more encoding, more storage, more retrieval. Uh, the computer, the network, the library, probably have all of those. All right. Memory has different characteristics or attributes. We can talk about action. Uh, acquisition, which is just the learning part of it. The representation part of it. So somehow things are stored and they're represented. The world is represented. What happened or what the, the knowledge itself is somehow... Represented, and the question is, how do we know how it's represented? Well, experiments, basically. And that's what most of this course is about: is how do we know how things are represented and stored, etc. We talk about direct experiences, what you're having right now, as primary memory. That's a commonly used term. So, primary memory is right now you're understanding what I'm saying because you can speak English. And the stuff you're processing right now, that's primary memory. That also includes the, you know, the other characteristics of the experience you're having right now. Previous states and working on stuff with other, other information. So maybe, you're, 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 maybe you thought about when I explained my sort of false memory of 1972 goal, some of it's false, some of it's true. You probably thought to yourself, I wonder if I have anything like that. Or maybe my parents, or maybe your grandparents, your grandparents maybe talk about things like when Kennedy was shot. Right? That's all called secondary memory. That's William James said that in the very first psychology textbook, Principles of Psychology, which was written in 1890. And we still use those words today, those, those terms, primary and secondary memory. James was really smart. I mean, he was also wrong about some stuff, but um, he was right about a lot of stuff, too. To learn more about William James, take History of Psychology in the fall. I'll be teaching it. It'll be fun. We're going to talk more about history next time, but Herman Ebbinghaus talked about how there were three different kinds of retrieval of memory. See, I'm, what I'm trying to show you here is these, these ideas are not, a lot of these ideas we think are new aren't that new. Um, he says, we can recollect the past intentionally. This is me trying to remember the goal in 1972. Or this is me remembering having uh, a, a Pillsbury cinnamon bun for breakfast. And President's Choice West Coast Dark Roast Coffee with whipping cream, because that's what I put in my coffee. Live a little. It's not a lot, it's like a teaspoon, but it tastes delicious. Live a little. I only put uh, low, low fat, non fat, skim milk. It's not even, why don't you just put a piece of chalk in your coffee? Just take some chalk and put it in water and put that in your coffee. It's not even food, skim milk. All right. 
Also, there's a lot of unintentional retrieval. It just happens. Right? Now, sometimes this can be something reminds you of something. Sometimes out of nowhere, something just comes back to you. And you just go, huh, that's weird. And you move on, continue your day. That does happen, right? And memory also shows up without awareness of it. This is the idea of remembering how to how to skate, how to ride a bike, how to do, how to do uh, calculus. You haven't done it for a long time. And it shows up because it, we, you think you have to relearn it, but it takes you five minutes to learn again how to take a second derivative of something. Oh, yeah, we're doing that. There, it comes back to you. So Ebbinghaus said this. In fact, we talk about all this stuff today, too. So we still use distinctions not unlike this today. And the vast majority of what we do recall is without awareness. The vast majority. It's hard to put a number on it, but you'll hear people put numbers on it that are well over 90% of what we do uh, of our cognition is completely inaccessible to, to consciousness. But I can show that you have memory, right? I can show that through experimentation. I can say, for example, if you've not skated in a couple of years, or even the first time you skate in the, put your skates on in the winter. You haven't worn them since, you know, last April, last time you went skating, and the first time you get on the ice, you go, whoa, that's a little funny. Oh, yeah, it's like this, and you're fine. Or you get on your bike for the first time in April or something. You haven't been on your bike. And for the first, like, you know, couple of strokes of the pedal, it's like, ooh, this is actually feels very dangerous and frightening, and I may die. Oh, I'm fine. Right? You remember how to do it. But it's not like you think, oh, right, what do I have to do? Push the pedal. Push, push, push. You don't think that. Or driving. Even if you haven't driven in a long time, you get back and get into a car, you can drive. Apparently, I don't drive. Well, I drove once. It was a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. It went fine. It was just it was against the law. Memory, I mentioned this. Memory can be often reconstructed. My, my story about remembering the, who scored the goal in 72, that I remember. I remember sitting there. I know I'm sitting in the front row. I'm sure I am. But the kid beside me can't be who I think is beside me in that memory. Sometimes it's almost completely fabricated. You can be told something enough that you believe it happened to you, right? That's kind of what you want to do for your paper, right? So I have been told that when my brother was born, which is in 1967, and I was two and a half years old, that I walked up to him. My mother put him down in front of me. I, I remember this, and I'm sure I really don't. But my mother put, put, puts my brother out in front of me and says, this is your brother, Dan. And I, I, I handed him a toy car, just put it beside him. And I said, Mom, he doesn't play. <laughs> you know, put him back. He's not finished yet. Um, now, there are things I probably do remember about that because I can, my mother, I've been told the story so many times though that I, I think I remember that. That said, I do remember what the room looked like. And I remember the layout of the, of the living room. 
in, that we had in Kingston. So I, I get, and my mother's like, yeah, that's right. Okay. So I'm remembering useless information. Kids are great at that. <laughs> they remember all kinds of useless crap because they, they, their memories aren't efficient yet. They haven't learned how to learn properly. But much of this is reconstructive. I, I'm remembering saying this thing to my mother, and there's no way I'm actually remembering it. It seems exceedingly unlikely. I guess multi-dimensional then. I mean, it's, it's got, you're remembering lots of different characteristics. You're representing all kinds of different things. Um, it's not a unitary phenomenon. I think we can pretty safely say that, though some people would argue with me. I think they'd be wrong. Um, as I said, knowing the capital of Vietnam, so knowing how to ride a bike, telling what you have for breakfast this morning, and knowing what breakfast is. That's semantic memory. That's procedural memory. That's episodic memory. That's also semantic. The thing people call the thing that people call muscle memory. That's that's procedural memory. Your memory, your muscles don't have memory because they don't learn anything. But the ability to type a password to a website without being able to know actually what the, web, what the password is anymore. You have, a, you have that ex experience, right? You go, you get to Amazon or somewhere, you go log in, and you just go. Somebody says, What's, and, and you think to yourself, you know, I actually don't think I know my password. <laughs> I have to look. The, oh, it's that. Right. I remember now. Right? It's all procedural memory at that point. It's riding a bike is, for example. Some very general principles about memory. We can say about almost every kind of memory. First of all, there's a forgetting curve that is almost always the same shape. Uh, and that shape looks like this. That, and we got uh, percent correct here, and we got time here. Looks like that. So it's exponential, but going down. It's not usually that drastic. Almost every, I can't think of anything that doesn't work like that. The idea of the power law of practice, all that says is that Practice, the other practice you do, it's not a matter of um, twice the practice leads to twice the learning. Twice the practice will lead to, it's an exponential curve. Okay? So it's not, so it goes like this. So it's sort of the opposite of how this looks, except you flip that over. It doesn't, it's not linear. Not linear. And you know this just from your life, right? There's a, an interesting thing called encoding specificity, which is that if things are encoded in one way, let's say visually, so you're reading something, you are better at recalling the items if you do that visually as well. So let's say you recognize words. 
If you're doing it with sound, by hearing the words, you're going to do better by recalling the words, saying yes or no if I read the words out to you, than you would if you were doing it on a piece of paper in circle. Okay. So the sort of perceptual part of it really matters as well. We'll use procedures like free recall, which is just what you would expect. Please recall the list of words. So you're free to put them in any order you want to. Whatever you want, just do that. We could use recognition, which again is, so again, I talked about this already, list of words. Uh, half of the ones you've seen before you've studied, the other half you didn't. Circle the ones you saw. We want to use sentence verification. This is a very specific type of uh, memory. This is for semantic stuff. And it's, is that a sentence? Or does that sentence make sense? Does something can be a sentence in English or anything, but it actually makes no real sense. Or it can be, is this a sentence you've seen before? Uh, priming, this is the idea with the filling in the blanks kind of thing. So you see an item, and then you get a perceptually degraded version of it later, and I ask you to fill it out. There's a lot of different approaches that we end up using. Questions? That's a good place to stop for the first day. Thank you, everybody, and I will see you next time. I think about about as much as I could take. How you been? A feeling that I can't break. A mistake. I didn't is fine, but it's already been one. Let's go. Everyone knows what they know, but I don't. Life's a horror in a show, so I'm sure.
listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Brodbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want, but if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something, but if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the, uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.